Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Articulum podcast. This is the third episode in our Oscar series where we will ask the question, which film can win the best picture at the Oscars? This week, we're talking about Aaron Source Kings. I might have butchered the name there. Um, film, um, The Trial of Chicago 7, which is available on Netflix. We're also talking about Vanessa Kirby in Pieces of a Woman. And could Borat actually win an Oscar? Now, if you haven't noticed this week, I am slightly butchering the intro compared to Jacob as he's unable to view it, us this week. So you're going to have to make do with me and Ben. Yeah, sorry about that. But uh, I actually want to know what Jacob would have thought of this film. I want to know what he would have thought because I think it was a really good picture yeah it was oh yeah compared to mine it was like my favorite of the best picture films i've seen so far and bearing in mind promising young woman uh uh, nomadland and um sound of metal haven't came out in the uk until today when i got to see minari but i really like trial of the chicago seven yeah, I think Same. So. I've actually watched this movie before I was even asked to watch it. I've already seen the movie. I've watched it like five... Actually, I've probably watched it about ten times at this point. I really wow. like it. I Well, I'm like the biggest Sasha Baron Cohen fan. So mm. I'm properly rooting for him to win the Oscar. And yeah, and I really liked this film when it came out and... I'm also fascinated by the history, so you know at least you've got one good review from here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I bought this one, like I said, I watched it before, before we were even asked you by Ben to have a look over it. And like I said, compared to last week's picture, I was a big fan seeing this, that this was the one we were going to be reviewing. Hmm. I mean, I don't get people who like don't like this film because people like it's bland it's boring you've seen it a million times before some people tried to complain there's no women in it but like you know history there was literally nowhere to stick a woman in this story uh because there weren't you get my point though like it was everyone in that courtroom was a dude so well no but also i think i don't get how people can say this film's been done before because i mean i know we get onto it later on in the podcast but it's very prevalent with what's been going on in the world even in the past few weeks there is very key themes i mean i do yeah i constantly think back at this film and i there is a little bit of the fact that if this film was released any time in the last 50 years it would have been highly relevant but particularly and it's actually been tried to be made since 07, 08. So it has been around for a while. But with Sorkin writing, Spielberg was going to direct it. But Sasha Baron Cohen's also, he signed on to it in 2008, fresh off Borat, which was a weird casting decision. Um, but yeah, I I think it's particularly weird now, watching it after all the events that happened last year and everything that's happened in Bristol over the past few weeks. Exactly and it's made me so much more suspicious of what has happened in Bristol. It's made me being like, did the police start the riot? Even though I think it was probably a cross between everyone just got tense and clashed. But Well, I mean, we both have a, I don't know, we have, we have a girl in our year um, from back at school, so just so the listeners know, who actually goes to one of the universities in Bristol and was at a protest. And she said very clearly that it was not, um, obviously I'm not giving any political opinion on it, I don't know, but she did say that it was 
um, more the police that made it violent rather than themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of those. There, there, could, there would also have been like one or two anarchists there who wanted to fight and wanted to riot, and and I don't think it's there's it's similar themes, but like they are at the same time completely different films because. If you don't know, The Trial of the Chicago 7 is based off the historical 1960s. Uh, I think it was 69, the trial was, um, where back in the... It's the presidential election which Richard Nixon wins. And the Democrats having their huge Democrat convention to say who's going to run in Chicago. And a group of protesters, including Abby Hoffman and Thomas Hayden, who are two idols of mine, Abby Hoffman, I... I find fascinating and have for a number of since before I watched this film. Uh, they all went down and they protested outside the convention, and essentially the police started a riot and there was a fight. And even though there was proof that the police started the riot, um, Richard Nixon's new administration decided because the Vietnam War was unpopular, he wanted to prosecute these um, the protesters, the rioters, the yippies. Uh, in Bobby Seale's case, the Black Panthers. Um, and what happened is a court case that is very well known. It's one of the most famous legal cases, not least because the judge, as is quoted and as someone says in the film, was giving down uh, motions that were being considered odd in Honduras. And yeah, it's it's a very topical thing, particularly as like, the 1960s, 70s was a rise in far-right populism after NAM and then you had it in the 80s. And certainly now, look, I know we've got rid of Trump, but in the UK, it's certainly going politically one way. Like, since, like, yeah. London, <laughs> last 10 years, you cannot say <laughs> that it's got more left-wing. Like, we are looking... <laughs> yeah. But the, but the next English one, I think, after current states that have current situations that have happened um over the world and also in our country i think the next election will be possibly even closer than the last one because i i think we could be looking at a new um government in power possibly yeah um i i also think this is just i'm a history student i'm fascinated in the history of social change and protest and what the people do which is why I'm really into the trial of Chicago 7 it's why it was my favorite film of last year that I saw last year because often we get them later in the UK and it's why originally I really wanted the Chicago 7 to win best picture um, and one of the things I think and I notice is the way humans work and the way our politics work is really cyclical and we go far right and then we go far left and then we go far right and we, it's like, what are those graphs? Is it like sound oh. waves? It's like sound yeah, they waves. Look, they do look yeah, like it. Yeah, exactly uh, the way world politics work is like sound waves. And often it's triggered by something like the World War Two, uh, rise in fascism. And then on the other and then as instantly after that, you get the NHS in Britain or, and then you get a rise in socialism in the 70s. And in Saudi Arabia, oil crashes. Uh, economies are bust and you get Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher in afterwards because something goes wrong and you swing otherwise it's why probably Covid means we'll swing left again uh, because we were exactly. right beforehand 
But yeah, do you think this film should be in the best picture category, right? I think it's, I think it, I, I, I don't necessarily think it will win, but I definitely think it deserves to be up for the award. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I don't think it will win either. Um, I think there was a point when Mank kind of came out, the film we talked about last week and everyone hated it, that this film stood a shot, but it didn't, it didn't pick up the globe and it kind of lost momentum quite a few weeks ago if it wins the SAG ensemble tomorrow it is back in with a shot and for a film with this cast and the ensemble award is quite you could see it going there you could see mm, considering definitely. there are so many great performances in this film whether they all work together compared to Minari which is the film it's competing is a different conversation entirely but um it's got a brilliant ensemble um, and it's also works in the fact that it's written by Aaron Sorkin, who is and directed. It's his second directorial feature, and he is loved by awards bodies. He do you, do you know anything he's wrote? I, I don't. Do, do you recognise the style? Because like I I was I do film, and we had this very interesting conversation about why in film it's directors who are seen as the auteur, and I point and Aaron Sorkin is like the only writer of film who has his own distinct style. He wrote Moneyball and The Social Network and Molly's Game and Steve Jobs. Oh, I've seen The Social Network. I've yeah. seen The Social Network. And he wrote um, The West Wing, the mm-hmm. like late 90s, early noughties, political optimism drama. Uh, he's And he's famous for his dialogue, which is quick, snappy, fast with the editing. If you've seen Moneyball starring Brad Pitt, he managed to make a film about baseball and the money side of it. So about baseball and maths, one of my a film that I really, really love, and it's really, really interesting. Aaron Sorkin, he's has, he is this really odd talent for making really complex and complicated issues really like films. Like, this is a court case, this movie. Um, like the, the real court case is really complicated. There are so many moving parts, and you, you're backing me up on this. It's really easy to understand. Yeah. I literally write this in um, some of the notes that I made before we, coming on the podcast. I literally said it, it's a really easy to follow film. I think, like Ben said, it is a very complicated case. Um, so many different elements to it other than just the protest itself. And I I didn't feel that confused. I've watched, you know, movies like this before, but there's so many different elements going into it. And I've got completely lost as to who's related to who and what it's actually all about. But here, it's a very easy... They've managed to not simplify a case in the sense of take away all the different dimensions of it, but they've managed to get a very, like, unanimous front in the sense of it's very easy to follow and kind of put the pieces together along the way. Yeah, and I think that it kind of helps with the fact that the film has very, very fast dialogue, but not like... It's not so fast you can't hear it, but it's snappy. It's like... When you're in the theatre and you hear the dialogue cracking off each other, it's really, really quick. And there's so much like jargon in the dialogue. There are so many words that are kind of quite complicated and you really need to listen to every line. But Sorkin, and he's done this since the 90s, he has this really amazing way of making you listen to every line and making really the words the stars. I mean, he wrote the la- one of the, another classic courtroom film a few, for A Few Good Men, which had the, you can't handle the truth line, and that's the only oh, thing That's the only film. thing I know about that film, because I've never actually watched <laughs> it. But, uh, I, I, but, of course, I know that line. 
who has a way of... He is really a modern-day Shakespeare. He just knows how to write words. Yeah, and I think um, what I liked about him, especially directing this movie, as well as writing it, of course, he he brought something really fresh to his work. It wasn't... You know, there's so many court case movies coming out, and they I find them all very interesting. But I feel like, like you said, with the snappy dialogue and stuff, that's something quite new because not that you miss what they're saying but obviously in court cases like I said they can be so complex that it's very easy to miss stuff if the dialogue is too fast whereas here I don't know if I'm making any sense really but it was snappy dialogue but you still didn't miss any of the key features and if anything it just showed the passion between all of the different elements of the film. Yeah I mean I do think there is a certain level that Sorkin is finding his feet as a director. This film is far more polished than Molly's Game, his last film, which is great, but it's still got the kind of, as an actual director, he's not particularly skilled. He has quite a limited directing skill set, which he makes up for because he's one of, he is the greatest working writer. So it's kind of fine that his films don't look visually interesting or appeasing because on your ears, they're amazing. But I don't think, and I think he was also not helped, or maybe he was helped by the fact that a large part of this film is set in a courtroom building, which means his weaknesses kind of weren't as noticeable because he kept it flowing. But the film couldn't move outside, and then it did have the flashback scenes to the 69 protests, and those felt very cinematic, and then you kind of felt caged back in to the court case. But... I wonder, I do think Sorkin maybe shouldn't have directed his own film. I think he's a writer, and I think that's what he does really well. And I like I like watching him write films, and I, like, and I do think he's the best at that. But I don't think his work directing is as good as when they bring someone else on. And it's like Charlie Kaufman, who wrote beautiful films. He wrote The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is a beautiful film, and it was heady and sci-fi and complex. Uh, and that was directed by Spoke Jones. And bringing someone else's mind on made the film flow better. And you compare that to now Charlie Kaufman started directing his screenplays with I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And it's too Kaufman-y and he's kind of playing into it. And it's too much of a mindfuck because it's one guy. And I think if you write the script and you're known for being a writer, actually you need someone else to come in and direct it because... They add something else. They add something different. And no director is... Firstly, an Aaron Sorkin script, that goes to the best directors. David Fincher did The Social Network. Danny Boyle did Steve Jobs. Steven Spielberg was signed on to this film for years. So, like, if Aaron Sorkin's writing a film, he he would be able to send it to any director in the world and they would sign on to it no matter what the topic was. And... I think the only reason he's directing the film is he's going a bit like, yeah, well, I want to be the main man. I want them to talk about an Aaron Sorkin film, which makes sense because he comes off TV in the West Wing and in TV, the head writer is the king and in films, the director is the king. But I still think a different director wouldn't, would have not made, they would have still kept it quick and snappy and exciting, but they may have added something else to it that the film's missing. I definitely think that you know hats off to him he tried something new you know it's not very often at all you see writers and 
the writers direct as well as write. So I completely respect the artistic side of things. But I think, especially now that I'm getting more into films, obviously I'm not a pro like Ben is, but I really can appreciate a great director. So, I mean, the one that always stands out is 1917 for me. The cinematics of that is just phenomenal. So when I maybe see one that's lacking, not that this one, like Ben said, I think the fact that a lot of it was based in the courtroom really helped his favour. I think if he's going to write and direct, not having too many complicated scenes and spaces and stuff to work with actually worked in his favour. But, you know, if this has been a bit more of a complex kind of setting-wise, I think he would have really struggled in the um, directing and it wouldn't have been as successful of a film. I think great on him trying something new, but I would have loved to have seen it with a different director just to see the new ideas they would have brought. Yeah, and look, this isn't... Directing a film is properly hard work because you have... There's so many different... The director, I always think, has to be not the best at every section, but they have to kind of be able to do it or help the person who's in the section excel. So a directing... Actually, some of the best directed films aren't the really big visual affairs. Um, It's something like Regina King's work in One Night in Miami, which is a film that isn't... It's cinematic and it's visual, but it's not showy. But the work she gets out of her actors, because she was an actor, actress, is unbelievable. And actually, that is what Sorkin's good at. He's good at using the dialogue to get great performances. And he cages himself in. Molly's Game, his last film, was a film about poker. So lots of it's set in the poker, in the casinos. In the, he's actually caging himself in, he's good at. Um, and I think, look, I, I'm very open about this. I could not direct a film. I do not have the leadership, I do not have the vision, I do not have the skills, and he, I could never create a film as brilliant as The Trial of Chicago 7, and if I could write a film as good as even the worst Aaron Sorkin movie, I would be beyond proud of myself, so look, this is, this is not saying he shouldn't have, and it's a very impressive film, it's just, when you have, and actually, if anyone else directed this film I wouldn't be critical of the direction but it's when you have the best writer in the world and they decide to direct their own film I'm always like well you're making me think about your directing not your writing which Aaron Sorkin anyone's going to celebrate his writing and his dialogue and his snappy and the way he plays with structure and the way because you watch films and they have flashbacks and the flashbacks feel awkwardly placed but Very the way, in this film, the way he would cut off a line of dialogue into the flashbacks, and it's such a good flow, and it felt well, and they would have uh, someone on the stand, and it would go to them in the events and the description. That worked so well, but that's the writing and the editing, not the directing that's showy here. Yeah, I think he kind of did himself actually a disservice by writing it, personally. Not by, no, by directing it, not writing it. Um, because it's such a great script, as we keep saying. I mean, I'm starting to learn even more elements of the film industry than just being on screen. And um, such great writing. Like I said, I, I loved the dialogue throughout this whole movie. Um, 
and and like I said, I think kind of linking back to Ben, he boxes himself in by. I mean, I don't know whether he obviously he didn't write it with the idea of directing it. I'm not entirely sure, but it's like what what you never. It's almost like the sense of the unknown. What else could have happened if? He hadn't directed it because like Ben said, I think it's getting a lot of props for the writing and the editing, but directing and also he worked with very established actors. Yeah, they and know you what see that in where the, you see that in where the film got its Oscar nominations. It got a writing nomination and the director's branch went, Well, Aaron Sorkin, he's not a director and didn't nominate him. Whereas if someone like Steven Spielberg directed the film I, I reckon he would have, even though Aaron Sorkin and Steven Spielberg are both big names in the film industry with a lot of power, I reckon Steven Spielberg probably would have snuck in that fifth Oscar directing spot. Not win, but I think he would have snuck in. And the reason I use Steven Spielberg as the example is because when the film was written in 2007, Aaron Sorkin had just finished, he'd just tied up the West Wing, he was looking for a new project, and he has a meeting with Steven Spielberg to... And Steven Spielberg goes, uh, do, and they start talking about the events in 1968, and they decide they're going to make a movie. And um, they cast Sasha Baron Cohen, who comes on as a producer. Um, and the story about Sasha Baron Cohen being cast in this film is wonderful. He he had to Steven Spielberg, who'd only seen him in Borat, which casting someone who you've only seen in Borat is a very brave move. But Sasha Baron Cohen, um, he got... He basically spent two weeks before his auditions with an acting coach and an accent coach to master Thomas Hayden's dialect. And I'm only telling the story because I think it's amazing. And he spent two hours, every, uh, he did, and he recorded the first and the last take every night. So he knew he was getting better. And he put the last one he ever did on a separate tape to all of the other ones and went to his assistant. Can he print this off and send it to Steven Spielberg before I do my audition? Why he knows I'm coming in. So he's impressed and expects it. And um, the assistant gave Steven Spielberg, instead of the test of the tape of night 41, he gave them the tape of night 1 to 40. And Steven Spielberg calls Sasha Van Cohen in the audition, before the audition and goes, you've got the job. And Sasha Van Cohen's like, oh, so you heard me do the speech. And he went, yeah, at number one, you were a bit ropey and you started to find your feet around time number 15, 16. And by number 33, 34, you were on it. And Steven Spielberg had just listened to Sasha Baron Cohen uh, to an hour's like worth of working on the speech and thought, I need this actor. Um, but yeah. And then Aaron Sorkin, after directing Molly's Game, Steven Spielberg calls him out, watches Molly's Game, and says, I think you should direct The Trial of the Chicago 7, and the rest is history. Now, I, we're going to come back to The Trial of Chicago 7. We're going to talk more about the cast um, and my absolute adoration of Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> We've also got Borat at the end of the film, at the end of the podcast, just because I literally worship the guy. But um, first, I, we, we're breaking up Trial of Chicago 7, and as with all of the other Oscar Best Picture specials, we're breaking them up with short reviews of films that are nominated at the Oscars but not in Best Picture. And we are currently, today, we're doing Pieces of a Woman, which is nominated for Best Actress for Vanessa Kirby of The Crown fame, where she played Princess Margaret. She's great in the movie. Um, like... I would, I think this might be the best performance of any of the actresses. It's not going to win, but I think it's the best performance. She plays Martha, uh, and she's married to Shia LaBeouf, 
and they're a Boston couple and they're about to have a baby and never home birth and you have this unbelievable 30 minute birthing sequence where Vanessa Kirby goes through birth in one take and um, which must be horrific <laughs> and then they and then the baby dies and they miscarry essentially and it's about how grief is a very personal thing and love is a group thing and um that Martha's forced to take the case to court against the midwife by her mother and she must really face her grief um this film is very honest it's very open it's unflinching it talks about a taboo it's heartbreaking um at points it's almost like misery porn through some of the scenes and it's chilly and it's frosty and over the eight months it sets it is beautiful because it's a story of grief and how it shatters you and that works so well and Vanessa Kirby I think this is the probably the best performance she will ever give in the in her as an actress she is unbelievable here and it's a shame the film isn't doesn't work as a whole and she's not got the Oscar buzz as an individual to win because I do think she probably I would have probably thought I would have at least thought long and hard about voting for her to win um and the ending doesn't work but I think the film says some really beautiful things it's also on Netflix and um, Vanessa Kirby well deserves her Oscar um from just joining in there I mean I've not watched the film itself but from hearing what Ben said I think that sounds like quite the incredible movie especially as I know so many women who have um not only have miscarriages but also stillborns um which is I think is what Ben was implying that happens in this movie and that is just heartbreaking it's actually as a woman myself a very big fear um and I think it's great I'm Fortunately, like Ben said, that it, it might not necessarily all work, but I think it's really good that they're making movies about this because I I think this is so true. You you do grieve alone and you love as a group kind of thing. So I think it's a really um I don't know who it's directed by or anything, but I think that's a very good step in direction to start making movies about things that are so common around women and are absolutely heartbreaking and a pain that I hope no one listening to this has to go through. Yeah, and like stillbirths, the whole thing this film talks about is how stillbirths is a grieving process that everyone in the family grieves because everyone expected the baby. And as soon as someone's pregnant, you love what's inside them no matter what. And then everyone's left with the awful grief process that must be heart-wrenching. I I have no clue why people are... Because some people are really like, oh, stillbirths weren't ever people. They were never here. And you're like, but they were to the people who wanted the baby and who were ready to love and they'd already given the love. And it's it's heart-wrenching and it is, it is genuinely really a difficult watch. And Oh, I think obviously whenever you get, I mean, no matter what happens in the future, whenever you, whether it's your partner or yourself, whenever you get... Or your daughter. That, yeah, that you, you are pregnant and stuff. You don't you you imagine in nine months' time you are having another mouth to feed, another a pot of love coming. That is what you are, you don't imagine that six months or even nine months down the line when you're going into labour, that actually none of it's going to happen. Mm. That that is the bit that I think is heartbreaking, and I'm very happy that you know Hollywood itself kind of is touching on these kind of subjects because it's a pain that I don't think is appreciated enough for how hard that is. You know, 
you get pregnant or hear about a pregnancy, expect to be loving someone, and they just disappear. Mm. And it's it's why I'm actually so thankful the Oscars exist, because if Hollywood was just about making money, this movie would never, and actually the Trial of Chicago Seven as well would never have been made, because and we would have got Avengers forty twelve or Avengers fifty two, being quite cynical. And, and the, the reason this film was kind of made was a director and a writer who are married couple, they're a Polish married couple, uh, so I'm not going to even try and say their names. Um, <laughs> but they wanted to go through their grief around miscarriage and being very cynical, Netflix and the production company smelled at least an Oscar if it went right for Best Actress. So that's really, it's why smaller films like this get made and it's, a good thing yeah i mean sounds like a great uh piece of work and definitely maybe one to have a look over but unfortunately moving away from this and back to the trial of chicago seven i mean i don't know about you ben and if you've got the vibe but i absolutely love the cast for this oh it's 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 such a cast I am obsessed with Eddie Redmayne, I'm going to say. That might not be his last name. I'm very dyslexic if uh, the audience hasn't been able to tell by now. Um, Okay. Well, ever since his performance um, in The Theory of Everything, I've been obsessed with him as an actor. He has so many character dimensions. And I mentioned Theory of Everything because that's obviously what he, I think, got his Oscar for in the end. I have a little bit of knowledge on the Oscars. Um, So, and I just, as an actor, I can never understand how he got his body to do what it had to do. And here, another amazing dimension of him as an actor. I mean, we also had Beetlejuice in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's always great to see Michael Keaton and Eddie Redmayne act alongside each other, considering Michael Keaton was robbed of his, I think he has won an Oscar now, Um, but he definitely was favourite to win the year Eddie Redmayne won. So, um, (laughs) Well, there was so many that year. I mean, there was also obviously the intimidation game with um, Benedict Cumberbatch. I think he was up for that year as well. So that was a very strong and Boyhood year as well was existing in just yeah, such a strong year of. I mean, that was a and hard Michael year. Michael Keaton was Birdman. Like twenty fourteen and twenty sixteen are, in my opinion, the two best years for Oscars. Um, uh, yeah, I don't but, know how they decided, honestly. But that's probably also my age and when I got obsessed with films and Oscars that I'm yeah. like, oh, those were such good years because I was like 12 and 14 then and don't really care about what happened in the 90s. But this is such a cast. Like, even, like, the... So, obviously, you have Redmayne, Oscar winner. You have Keaton, I think, Oscar winner. You have Rylance, Oscar winner. You have Sasha Baron Cohen, who you speak to any comedian, yeah, and most of them will say Sasha Baron Cohen's the best at the kind of prank things. And, uh, and oh, the I, I could not believe seeing him in this role. I mean, I know he's famous for Borat, but actually what I know him from is from The Dictator. Yeah, um, and Ali G and Bruno. Like, he's, it, he's a brilliant dramatic. Like, I think that's what you forget. And you hear him talk in person and he's wonderfully articulate and intelligent and... Um, me and my flatmate are actually obsessed with Sasha Baron Cohen. Like, we quote him. <laughs> we we genuinely quote him around the flat. Um, but uh, it's just the cast. And then you have people like Jeremy Strong in there, who's not on his... I have seen Jeremy Strong do a lot better. His work in Succession is great. Jeremy Strong is playing the other yippie. And um, 
I and he just did not work in this role, um, which is a shame. He's like the only bad cast member in the film. But if you watch yeah. him in Succession, like he is unbelievable in that show. Um, I just, I just feel like he never got to grips with his character. I loved the one dimension of his role he gave, which is basically that he's just an evil. He was guy there for comedic like, relief. Yeah. It just, I, I, I don't know. I just, I just didn't love it. I just didn't like. Oh, oh, Jeremy Strong. I think yeah. we've, I think we're talking about Jeremy Strong's the other yippie alongside Tash Baron Cohen. Right, I'm thinking of completely the wrong person. Who are you thinking, thinking of? I'm thinking of the judge. I googled. Oh, him Frank Langella. The. I'm thinking of completely the wrong person. Yeah. I'm so sorry. No, no, Frank Langella, who's... I'll leave Ben to review Jeremy Strong because I am reviewing the wrong guy No, right but, now. you know, you can you can probably agree with me, the um, other yippie alongside Sasha Baron Cohen. Like, he's he's there for comedic relief. That's his role in the film. But he just feels yeah. like... He feels like all the cool yippie stuff, as it should, because it was Abby Hoffman, is going to Sasha Baron Cohen and he's just there like, yeah. I've caught an egg. And one <laughs> egg is an oof. And just like what yeah. then you do have someone like Frank Langella, who you mentioned, so let's go on to him, who's as the judge. And that's a hard role because that is such a one-dimensional role. I Yeah, like I said, I loved his... I loved what he gave. And I think, like I said, I he got me to hate that judge. He really got me angry mm. at what that judge symbolised. You know, the judge is meant to symbolise, you know, not only in forcing the law but also giving justice to the people and there was just no justice especially in the way um blacks versus whites in the case were treated just a, a lot of things there although it was very hard i think for him as an actor to dive deeper i didn't see much conflict i just saw well i don't like i don't think they're needed to like it's one of the things i liked about the film is they didn't give the judge a redemption arc. Like, that judge no, should not... True. At that point, that judge was, like... I think they thought he was medically insane. I think the film alluded to that. Um, And he was way... T- like, there is a point where you are too old to be a judge. Like, there's a point where yeah. you are too old to be a politician and you're too old to be a judge. Like... Definitely. And he was... um, He went in with a preset motivation and you could see that and... The first court scene where he's like, me and Mr. Hoffman are not related is very funny. But, yeah, um, definitely. But, like, you know, if they had given him a redemption arc, it would have been odd. Um, and it's unlike how they gave Joseph Govan Levitt, who's playing the prosecution lawyer, he gets a bit of a um, redemption arc. But that kind of works because the whole thing is, the whole time it's up, he's doing his job. He doesn't think much of them personally, but like 50% of America did hate these guys. Um, yeah. So that's, and... I, I mean, I think, I guess, um, I think for what he had to play, he played it amazingly. And like I said, I think there are just characters that no matter how much you want it, there just is no, like, emotional diversity. They just do believe what they believe. And, and this is real life. Like, the people, the Chicago 7 got justice in the end. Um, sadly, Bobby Seale really didn't. Um, but the Chicago 7 did all get justice in the end. 
But that lawyer and that judge had nothing to do with it. No. Judge Hoffman was not responsible. Actually, Judge Hoffman was basically seen to have done such a bad job on this trial, he never got another one again. He was essentially forced into retirement from absolutely plundering this. Yeah. And you you mentioned this. Um, So let's talk about Bobby Seale. And he is such a major presence in the first half of the film, played by Yaya Abdul-Manteen II, who... Just on a really random note, he, he won an Emmy for his role in Watchmen early this last year. Yaya Abdul-Manteen II has my favourite name of any actor. I just love it. <laughs> I think it's such a cool name. Um, Very cool name. Like It's like almost not... Not saying it's like almost... It's just such cool off the tongue. And I, I love the second at the end as well. Like, yeah. That's what makes it. It's... He's not the first Yaya Abdul-Manteen, it's the Yaya Abdul-Manteen II. It sounds almost regal and fun. And anyway, he is simply unbelievable as Bobby Seale. Um, I, if you don't know, Bobby Seale was the leader of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Um, we Weirdly, we have Fred Hampton in this film, and we talked about him a couple of weeks ago in Judas and the Black Messiah. Fred Hampton, yeah, who's played by two different men in two different Best Picture winning films. Um, if you you may have noticed this in Judas and the Black Messiah, they do a drawing of the scene where Bobby Seale's chained up on the court yes, case that's yes. in this film, and quite brutally depicted in this film. Yeah. It's it's a strong image that stays in your mind. And whereas the protesting bit I find has got more prevalent since the, what's happened in Bristol and the police overforce at Sarah Everett. Like, this film came out, like, two or three months originally after the Black Lives Matter protest. And there was the image of seeing a black man chained in the courtroom hit hard. That is a hard thing to it... to see because it... Obviously, I appreciate there are people who have different views that I don't agree with, but I will never understand how the colour of... I mean, we speak about this so much in the podcast, but... I never, it's such an alien concept, I think, to me and Ben and, and Jacob, he was here, that that, that that would be even able to happen. Yeah, and it's just the um, the best one. It's Have You Seen Us by Jordan Peele that came out last year? Yeah. Yeah, he's, one of the opening images is a black man being arrested by the police for doing nothing. Um, and Jordan Peele said this film, unlike Get Out, is not about race. And 90% of the film isn't about race, but just by doing that image... It's without being overtly about race, it does make the statement. And there is a certain thing that the trial of the Chicago 7 never goes fully into the racism because it's not that film. And whereas it's about the protest and the mistreatment of all eight. So the fact it goes, it goes into it a lot more than it would have done if it came out 10 years ago. Let's be honest. Bobby Seale would have, he would have been arrested and chained in the first 30 minutes. Um, it does really go into that, and but it doesn't overdo it. Instead, uses the images of him constantly going, I don't have my lawyer, and then being chained up. And just the scene of him being chained up is so powerful. And no I, one... I, I completely agree. Yeah, it's, it's the image that sticks in my mind, and it's that scene that sticks in my mind in the film. You know, the... I think that scene is very powerful. And like I said, I think here it it does 
it touches on the fact that racism, no matter, I mean, even in movies nowadays, like, like I said, going on in normal life, there is still racism, but movies kind of, if they're going back in history, they have to almost have the proof that racism was a thing without making it an anti-racism film. It was so common in everyday life, just like how you breathe and walk, racism was was just around the corner it was happening in front of everyone's eyes and in this movie that just shows it even more yeah i mean i don't i disagree that every film in the past needs to talk about racism i mean like like yeah i think if look there was no way you could have told this story without like being quite open about it because what happened to bobby seal was Mm -hmm. he was the most prominent member of the Black Panther Party, uh, so, and Martin Luther King had died, Malcolm X had died, Fred Hampton had, was like a couple of months from being shot. So um, Bobby Seale is, for a large chunk of this movie, the most biggest black activist in America. So there was no way he could have been in the story and not do that properly, and they did do that properly. And he is Yahya Abdul-Mantin II, he, I actually think he gives the best performance in this film. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I just... I agree. Because it's it's heartbreaking. And it's really... Whereas all the others were at the right and were at the protest, he really wasn't. And the whole... That scene is heartbreaking. And everyone else gets lighter work and gets gags or jokes and... Is really good performances, and there are mostly brilliant performances in this. But his, oh, you just feel beaten up by watching him. I think it's the fact that they are all on case for the same crime, but you can still see how they're being treated differently. Well, I mean, and he I wasn't that... on case for that crime. Let's, oh, he was on well, no, case no, for, no, but no. you know, he wasn't yeah. there. He was, he was there because technically he was in Chicago that day, and. As he points out, they needed a black man to make them look more intimidating. Exactly. And that was basically let's chuck in every activist in jail for 10 years. That will shut yeah. people up. Um, shall we talk about the actor, Oscar-nominated member of the cast there, Seth Brown Cohen, who is, this is one of his best roles. Oh, fantastic. So many dimensions. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I think this is his best performance, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it's his best. I actually think Borat deserves that distinction. Um, I think in terms of actor development, that's kind of where I'm This is his most... Oh, he's a brilliant dramatic actor. He's done some brilliant dramatic work before. This is one of his most... This uh, is I his... Think this is, this is his best... Common, I just think this is his best. And not... Obviously, Borat, he is incredible as... And that, that's... that's Obviously, I'm thinking of him more as a not serious. That's obviously a serious role, but like emotional kind of. I don't know how to word it, but that kind of acting. I do think this is his best. Yeah, this is his best. Yeah, I get what you're talking about. I mean, there are different. What he does in his comedic roles, like his brand of comedy, yeah, is unbelievably hard. I mean, the way he makes it look so easy. Yeah, the way he makes it look so easy until he goes on a talk show and talks about how he wears, like, bulletproof vests while he's shooting these scenes. You're like, that's part of the impressive thing. And after this, mm-hmm. we'll literally get close on Baron Cohen and then talk about Borat, so it's a really easy segue out. 
this is the first time he's played a real person, or he did that Netflix show, The Spy, last year. Yeah, he's he's brilliant. I, I, I hope yeah. he wins the Oscar, because I also think, look, Daniel Kaluuya is great as Fred Hampton, and um, he deserves an award. He really does. But yeah. Sasha Baron Cohen... I think is actually overdue and an Oscar. I think overdue one. I think I think this is turning into a Leonardo DiCaprio situation where it's yeah, like, well, what it's, is he going to do that gives it to him? Yeah, and it's like, look, maybe this isn't the role, but he's still very memorable in this role. He's nominated twice this year. He's nominated for writing Borat, which I know sounds insane, might happen, um, but like he, but you know, any he's widely respected. Like, he's, he's more respected by people in the industry than he is at large in general public, which I know sounds yeah. like a really weird thing, but people who work, actors, writers, producers, who are the people who vote on the Oscars, understand just how difficult what he does most of the time is. I mean, mm-hmm. let's talk about Borat too. The scene, I know it's not Sash Baron Cohen, but the scene where Maria Bakalova, who plays his daughter, mm-hmm. have you seen Borat too? I I have seen it, but I was um I I was I was quite drunk when I watched it. So, okay, um, but you know I the Rudy Giuliani that. scene at the end. Yes. Yeah, like how difficult is that as an actor? Because you have one take, mm-hmm. you have to put yourself in a dangerous position, um, yeah. which lots of the time Sasha Baron Cohen really does. Like he is Eric Andre does pranks on the street, and Eric Andre is funny. Sasha Baron Cohen does pranks, makes them political and makes them dangerous. He's an actor yeah. who's stayed in character for multiple days with QAnon supporters. He has sung, yeah, like he honestly, I don't know why he hasn't. I actually think Borat deserves an Oscar nomination for the acting because. Oh, um, well, I think it does for the acting because that is a hard role to play. Yeah, and it's, and the way he makes it look so easy. Um, yeah. There's an uh, there is a very strong argument to say comedic actors Chaplin Sasha Baron Cohen um, like <laughs> there's a very because what and most actors will say he's the greatest in the world that's why Borat got a writing nomination it's why Maria Bakalova got a supporting actress nomination it's why I actually think that Borat was probably the next in line to get a best picture nomination because it got a nomination at the Producers Guild Awards um. So we're going to have to wrap up in a minute because I'm actually having a nosebleed on camera right now. Um, we will, I, thought, I thought so. We will very quickly make our way through then to the end of the podcast. Yeah. Um, so I guess the question to leave it at is, do you think this film will win Best Picture? No, because I think Nomadland will, which makes our whole series kind of pointless considering that's coming out in the UK after, mm-hmm. the, Oscar, after the Oscars. But um, I think this is a strong second. I completely agree with what. Ben and I think saying. it's it's probably in the hunt. It's yeah. falling slightly out of the hunt, and um, yeah. And the other thing that I wanted to say is Maria Bakalova needs to win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. But otherwise, I'm gonna have to run to the bathroom. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, that is it for this week's podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening in. Hopefully, next week we will be joined with Jacob. Very quick outro. As Ben, I can literally see him. He's having a horrible nosebleed right now so we will see you next week where we will be reviewing minari which is beautiful that's all we've got to look forward to uh, past a few extra things embedded there thank you so much for listening and we look forward um to next week
Bye.